This is the Get Healthy 360 podcast, where we discuss topics related to your physical, mental, psychological, and spiritual health. Your host is Dr. Chris Ferguson, board certified in anesthesiology and pain management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you should consult your primary healthcare provider before making any decisions related to your health. And here's your host, Dr. Chris Ferguson. Oh, one more thing before we start. If you like this episode, please consider rating us five stars. We would really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Welcome to the Get Healthy 360 podcast. Today, we're talking about the coronavirus with Dr. Uzma Syed. She's a board-certified infectious disease specialist with an antimicrobial stewardship committee position published and pneumonia-related research publication background. Um, she cares a lot about education. She directs a nonprofit called Align US that provides mentorship and career development for high school kids, serving on two school committees. She's a rising Muslim civic figure in Nassau County politics. She co-founded the Eid Holiday coalition, served on the commissioner's community council. She's recognized by the legislature as a female trailblazer and ran um, as a school board trustee in 2018, all while being a proud and visible um, hijab Muslim woman. But today we're talking about the coronavirus. So for anyone who doesn't know, for someone to be an infectious disease specialist, that means they went through four years of medical school. They then did, correct me if I'm wrong, three years of internal medicine and then a subspecialty for several years in just infectious disease. So it's it's like a thousand years of research and learning. So you know a ton about infectious disease. So you're more than qualified to talk about the coronavirus. So thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm going to be very honest with the audience and everyone who's listening. I do interventional pain management. So I know very little, if anything at all, about viruses compared to my very learned guest. So just to start off with the basics, there's this coronavirus. What is a virus? How does it work? How is it different than the regular flu or cold or pneumonia or other bugs that we can get? Sure. So, you know, there's a lot of different infectious organisms out there that we are subjected to. Um, And, you know, you have viral infections, which are from a virus, and you have bacterial infections um, that are from different types of bacteria. And then you can have parasitic infections from parasites. So there's different organisms um, that can produce infections. And virus is basically a class um, that, you know, it's an infectious agent that is can be found inside of a a living cell. Um, And it can, you know, it can be contagious and it can uh, form uh, illness in a person. Um, So similar to, you know, bacterial infection that can also um, create illness in individuals, it just has a different, you know, it's a different organism um, and it causes different types of illnesses, symptoms and diseases. So for those without a medical background or they're not a physician or healthcare provider, what is the difference between a bacteria and a virus? The virus is a more contagious infectious agent where, you know, you can find viruses all around us. The common cold, for example, it's a virus. You know, people very commonly, you'll see your coworker, um, your friend might be sneezing um, around you. And all of a sudden, a day later, you come down with, you know, uh, a cold as well. So those are all viruses. You know, this time of year, we are all essentially exposed to so many different viruses. And the common cold is a virus. Um, And we have so many different viruses in those um, uh, in general categories and in those different families that can present with the same kind of symptoms where people have a fever, 
covers runny nose, cough, um, influenza is a virus. So, you know, we are seeing these um, most of the time uh, all year round, but specifically more heavier predominance in the winter months and the, and the seasonal uh, time frame. And how is a virus then different than, say, a bacterial infection, if you can make that distinction? Sure. So bacteria, there's different types of bacteria that cause um, different sorts of infections. For example, um, you you know, you can have a skin infection that is caused by a bacteria um, and you have to have a mode. Usually it's, there's a portal of entry, meaning that there's a way that you contracted that bacteria. Bacteria are different from viruses that you can't, they're not contagious by, by touch or by droplets. You know, it's a different type of infection. Whereas viruses, you know, they're all around us and they're spread, you know, very easily because the, the, droplets from a person, say a person sneezes, um, and you know, they have some droplets when they sneeze or when they cough. So those uh, particles are infectious, essentially. And when you come into contact with that, you can easily then pick up that virus, whereas a bacteria is not transmitted the same way, there has to be a portal of entry. So you have to, you know, have some type of contact, um, whether it be, you know, you have a big cut on your skin, and there is bacteria that you came into contact with, and then the bacteria gets underneath there, and then starts creating a skin infection. So that's a different way where it's not just by, you know, being near somebody who's coughing or sneezing and you can easily pick that up. So what is new about this coronavirus that it seems everyone's getting very excited about? Sure. So coronavirus actually is um, just basic information is that it's actually in a family of viruses um, that predominantly causes, you know, respiratory symptoms, respiratory symptoms, meaning um, cough, um, shortness of breath, you know, fevers. And this virus has been around for some time now, the coronavirus. Um, The thing that's different is that, you know, there's been a little bit of a mutation in the virus. And now we have a different strain of that virus that's uh, prevalent. And that's why we're hearing about it in the news so much. So if people um, have heard previously about the SARS virus that was in around 2003, and the MERS virus that was around 2012. So those were also coronaviruses. We just didn't hear about them as specifically um, called coronaviruses because they were essentially given the name SARS and MERS. And that's what we heard about in the media. But they belong to the same group of um, the same family of viruses is that this coronavirus COVID-19, which is a new name that's been given by the WHO, um, and that they belong to the same exact group and family of viruses. So they've been around for some time. It's just that when there's mutations, meaning changes in the virus, we see a different strain coming about. And that's why, you know, we have this new epidemic um, that's ongoing. So the WHO or the World Health Organization, Mm -hmm. they tend, correct me if I'm wrong, but they tend to monitor and and deal with these contagious outbreaks. Mm -hmm. Um, How did they come up with the name? Because you mentioned it was called COVID-19, but how did they go from that to um, the coronavirus? So the corona, coronavirus is actually the name, um, the original name, it's, a, it's from the, the viruses from a family called coronaviridae. Um, and it's a large group of viruses, mostly seen in mammals and in birds. And, uh, and it's, like I mentioned before, a virus that gives respiratory symptoms. So we have so many different subgroups of that, not to go too much into the medical complexity of that, but we have an alpha virus, a beta virus, a gamma and a delta. And you know when, uh, when they look at these different viruses and the different categories 
place in this family. The beta is the type that where we see the MERS and the SARS and this COVID-19 coming from. So when it was first discovered in December of 2019, they were actually calling this strain because there was no real name to it, but they were referring, it, it belongs to the coronavirus family and it was not yet named. So they decided to call it 2019 N-CoV, N standing for novel coronavirus because it's a new strain of this coronavirus. So in fact, coronaviruses have been around for a long time. Um, and like I mentioned before, usually they're one of the common um, respiratory viruses that we deal with you know, in any passing year. It's just that when it mutates, that it goes into something a little bit different, a different strain of it. And that's when we started picking up in December of 2019, this 2019 novel coronavirus. After that, as we were, as it was evolving, which it still is, and more and more cases were coming out, um, the WHO and the international health organizations were getting together and having emergency meetings and deciding and deliberating whether this was going to be um, a, a burden uh, a, 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 to a degree where it would be called, you know, an international health uh, emergency. Um, and for that reason, as things were developing, they had to come up with a name uh, for the virus. And what was really interesting is that. Uh, everybody was anticipating and waiting for this name. And it was really important on how they were going to decide to name this virus because a lot of it um, was depending on the, the name of the virus was really going to dictate how it was going to affect uh, the large communities. Given that it is coming predominantly from China, it was really important that they not use nomenclature that were referred to specifically a geographic location that would then have so much implication worldwide, not just within China, but even outside of China, where we could see a lot of prejudice uh, against a certain group of people just because of where the virus originated from. So in fact, they went ahead and named it COVID-19, um, coronavirus, you know, 2019. And that's been the name that's been uh, used predominantly now to refer to this strain of this coronavirus. Now, you mentioned that this virus is typically found in animals, bats, mm -hmm. et cetera. How, how does this virus then go from animals to people? Right. So usually the way that viruses are transmitted uh, from one group of animals to then human beings is there's usually an intermediate host, meaning that there's another. So it lives in. So most of these viruses, um, you know, are in mammals and in birds. And when we see that it jumps from one group of animals to another, to mammals, specifically to human beings, there's usually an intermediate host, meaning that there's another animal in between that is serving as the, the in-between from the originator to the next level, the next group of transmitters. So for example, um, in the MERS virus that we saw in the same group of families um, in 2012, they found that there was, you know, there was a correlation between it was jumping from camels essentially to human beings. Um, so same thing with SARS that we saw in 2000, 2003, that bats were actually the intermediate hosts. So, you know, we can see that there's different animals. They haven't pinpointed specifically which is the intermediate host for COVID-19, but they have a lot of information as far as where it originated from. We know that it was from a seafood market, and we know that there was a lot of different animals um, at that market. Um, in addition to seafood, you know, there was bats and there was other types of um, animals there. So, you know, we we know that the virus has jumped from one um, uh, series of animals to another, and then to, uh, finally to human beings, which is what we're seeing right now. 
And when you say it goes from animals to human beings, is it because human beings are eating the animals or just them being around the animals? Um, so specifically for this virus, we don't know 100% yet, but most, most of the cases is that there's, it goes from an intermediate host then to the human being. So um, it's just that the virus has jumped from one to another. So that one, the first case can be from, you know, just that there's so much proximity of these different um, animals in one small area. Um, and for COVID-19, we don't know specifically what set it off at this point. Now, how do they trace where this came from? Because it seems, at least to me, it would be difficult to figure out where it originated. You just have this, Asia is a massive place, China's a massive place. How do they pinpoint or really narrow down where this, the outbreak originated? So they were able to, with the cases that were coming in, and when they first saw similar illnesses coming from a particular area, usually this is the trend in many infectious diseases, um, patients are do, you know, start coming in with similar symptoms, with similar illnesses, and there's all of a sudden a rise in reports, you know, people getting sick uh, in families or uh, neighbors or close proximity of each other. That's when, you know, from an epidemiologic standpoint, that's when people start thinking that, okay, there's something going on here. Uh, we're having higher than normal um, reports of, you know, a, a respiratory illness or fever or certain symptoms coming in. And that's when people really start looking into where are these coming from. The same thing happened here. They were able to pinpoint that it came from a seafood market um, in Wuhan specifically. And when it, when the data first came out um, out of China, we initially, it was thought that there was no human to human transmission. It was only a few, you know, cases of people that actually worked at this market. And then they found that there was one case, um, a familiar cluster where there was a, um, a father, um, a son, and another family member, all three that worked at the market that were all sick with similar symptoms at the same time. Um, then after that, they found that there was a, um, a spouse of a person. There was a person who worked in the market who was ill with the symptoms. And then um, soon after, the spouse became ill who had not traveled, who had not been to that market. And so that's when they discovered that there was, in fact, some human-to-human -human transmission. Now, with, with the coronavirus... Um what are the repercussions of actually catching the coronavirus? So most people um, will have a mild, you know, respiratory illness. The people that are not doing well uh, essentially are the people that have that, you know, there's certain criteria of people that are not doing well with the coronavirus, uh, specifically COVID-19. And those generally are people that have some underlying medical conditions, meaning people that already have, you know, high blood pressure or cardiovascular disease, um, people whose immune systems are somewhat suppressed. Um, you know, when they get sick with this, they're having a little bit more of a severe outcome from the illness. The mild symptoms that people are seeing, the general public, it would be just, you know, like a respiratory illness, like any other coronavirus uh, could potentially produce. You know, you can have you can have a sore throat, you can have a cough, you can have some shortness of breath, um, but then you can get better. People that are not doing well are the ones whose symptoms then progress to more severe symptoms, such as um, really having trouble breathing, where you go into something called acute respiratory distress syndrome, where you know your lungs are really overwhelmed with this virus, and you know you may need to be in the ICU. You might need to be on a ventilator. You know you 
are not doing as well as somebody else might be um, who may not have some of the medical conditions that you might. Um, some people's kidneys are getting affected. You know, obviously there have been reported deaths from this, um, but there's a spectrum. You know, there's a spectrum of illness. Um, and most of the people... It, in general, it's the mild, you know, um, re viral respiratory illness. Um, and other people who are not doing so well, they have more severe respiratory symptoms and other organs being affected by it. So what's unique about this virus where everyone's worked up about it? So for example, I have um, some friends who their, their relatives actually live in China. They're on, they're on lockdown. Mm -hmm. So they have to stay in their apartment for they they can only leave their apartment every three days and it's guarded and that's to go get food and then they go back home. So why is there this, it seems large, very, very um, pronounced response to this virus versus just the regular cold or flu that people get every year? Right. So I think what's interesting is that, you know, when we see that viruses have mutated, uh, the perfect example is when we had the SARS um, outbreak in 2003, same sort of thing. And uh, actually, there's been a lot that has been uh, learned from that outbreak with respect to containment of infectious diseases. So when you're dealing with infectious diseases, the issue that always comes up is the communicability. So how easily are these um, infectious diseases transmitted and how much of an impact is it going to have on the general population and worldwide. So they learned a lot from the SARS um, outbreak that happened in 2003. And so they've been very quick to sort of try to contain this. Um, the issue is that the people that are being affected, you know, you have the spectrum of illness and there are a good number of deaths specifically um, in, in China. You have to remember that majority of cases still, 99% are still in mainland China, where, you know, if you look at just today, the most updated information from WHO shows that there's over 78,000 cases, uh, confirmed cases um, of COVID-19. And 77,000 of those, more than 77,000 of those are from mainland China. So majority are still in China. And so what they're trying to do is um, they're trying to contain the virus before um, it continues to spread anymore and before it you know, um, goes more globally, which as you know, with travel, that's something that happens frequently. The quarantine essentially is, you know, based on the symptoms and based on what we know on the incubation period, meaning, you know, how long can people be harboring the virus um, before getting sick. And it's really as a ways of preventing other people from potentially catching the illness and, and spreading to more and more people where we are seeing a good number of uh, deaths happening in certain populations, again, more so in mainland China. And it's really from previous practices, um, what they've learned from the SARS uh, epidemic that they have been um, practicing this in different countries on how they want to try to contain um, this virus, because it's still, we're still in the midst of it. If you think about it, we, things are still evolving. Um, there was, you know, the, the cases that were reported were really starting in December, but it was not um, taken into account till January and the numbers kept rising. So our numbers are still continuing to rise and that's because we are still in the midst of this and things are changing day to day, minute to minute, uh, where we keep getting updates um, on the cases. So what does quarantine actually look like? So when I picture quarantine, I think of a movie scene where someone is in this little room and people are in space suits, you know, the hazmat suits and whatnot. Right. But for, for all... I don't know if that's actually what it does look like. What does quarantine look like? How long do you keep someone? So here's a scenario. Say you have someone who 
has to travel for China for business purposes. They come back and they have these flu-like symptoms. Right. So anybody, so essentially quarantine, actually, historically, if you look at it, um, it actually is interesting because it was actually first uh, described uh, when the plague was um, uh, rampant and it used to have to refer to actually these ships that were coming to Venice. And um, because of the plague, they used to keep people quarantined on the ship for about 40 days. And that it really, the word comes from the word quarenta. Um, so, you know, so the quarantine refers to isolating people for a certain amount of time um, as a preventative measure, you know, to from infectious diseases. So what they have found is that um, it's about 14 days cycle of this incubation period where they want to watch people to see if they develop any symptoms. So essentially what they're doing is they're asking people to avoid having contact with other individuals in this 14-day period if they are in fact high risk. Now, every country is dealing with the situation in a different way. So, you know, the United States has its own regulations on how they're dealing with patients here as opposed to China. So we can't really speak to what's being done worldwide, but we do know that the recommendations are for 14 days of quarantine for a person of interest. Person of interest meaning somebody who's had contact, potential contact with a confirmed case of COVID-19, that person needs to be watched for about 14 days to see if they develop any symptoms. So I know they're doing things differently um, in different parts of the world. In the US, for example, if somebody had traveled um, and they returned back after traveling to this area and somebody they knew was in fact diagnosed with COVID-19, they should then call up their physician before just going over there, whether it be to a doctor's office or a hospital, you have to call ahead of time to let them know that, you know, you recently traveled, you found out that somebody you were with um, has tested positive and you're feeling fine or you're not feeling fine, whatever this, the, maybe the case may be, but um, you're calling with this scenario. So then the physician can properly triage you and, and direct you as to what the next step is. For example, if you are having symptoms after traveling and being in contact with somebody that was diagnosed with COVID-19 um, and this coronavirus, if you are having symptoms of cough and fever and shortness of breath, then you know, calling your medical doctor, they would not want you to come to their office where there's potential for you to then possibly transmit this virus and you know, other people contract it as well. They would direct you to the hospital, by, but first informing the hospital that you're coming because there's certain protocol that has to take place in order for the hospital to also be equipped with receiving you so that you know you are essentially put in the appropriate hospital room with the appropriate precautions so that everybody who's then also in contact with you um, is appropriately dressed and equipped uh, to handle that. So I'm gonna make a small comment on that. So if so I, I'm a pain physician. If someone has a pain issue, I'm happy to talk to them, but I will have zero comment on the coronavirus. So <laughs> I would, so I, so as, as a general rule, if you're looking for information for anyone in this podcast, I would really recommend, I think your family practice doctor is a good source. And I think talking to an infectious disease specialist is definitely a good source. Um, so with that said, just be aware of where you're getting your information. If you're going, getting it from the information, the CDC is yeah. typically a really good site. And again, maybe your family practice doctor or ideally your infectious disease 
um, specialist. It's very important. I'm glad you bring that point up, actually, because um, its source of the information is so important. CDC and WHO, if you have any doubts, those are really... The the WHO is the World Health Organization. World Health Organization. You have WHO.int, best organization to go to, otherwise the CDC, um, and the Infectious Disease Society of America is constantly also updating um, their recommendations and their information. But it's a great example, even for practitioners. You know, I get a lot of questions from uh, even family practitioners that are asking, um, is there a test, you know, for this um, coronavirus, COVID-19? And what I instruct them next, um, what I tell them is that they should not be running the test. There is no test to run in the office, but they should not, even if they are suspecting that somebody has that, that person needs to be sent to the hospital. They need to consult with an infectious disease physician. The Department of Health needs to be notified and the CDC. So there's a whole protocol. There's policies and protocols in place. And, um, you know, so it's not something that, uh, you know, say, you know, a chiropractor or a um, kidney specialist or some somebody else um, should just be thinking about taking care of in the office, um, you know, because we're dealing with, you know, public health um, uh, infection, uh, infectious disease, that we should really be notifying the people who are dealing with this and um, triaging it appropriately. So if someone's been quarantined, and they go through the 14-day period you mentioned, and they're, they have no symptoms. Mm-hmm. Are they still contagious? No, because they were never, if they did not have symptoms at all, they were never sick, and they do not have symptoms at the end of the 14 days, they were never infected. Um, therefore, they're not sick. Um, the situation. So the quarantine, like I mentioned before, is just as a precautionary thing. If for people who have had contact, who have had travel, who have had contact um, with people that have confirmed have that illness. Um, and it's just as a precautionary thing. For people, other people who have tested positive and then need to be, you know, these patients generally, you know, we've had some cases in the United States um, and the, uh, the patients that have been admitted to the hospitals that have been quarantined, you know, that have been tested positive, um, they also have, you know, this 14-day um, quarantine time frame. but it's a little bit different as far as, you know, when um, they're not considered contagious anymore. And really the criteria is when they have no further symptoms, no fevers, um, and uh, when they've tested negative on two consecutive tests um, uh, or greater than 24 hours apart. So there's a test for the coronavirus. There is, yes, there is a test for it. Now, this is going to sound like an odd question, but why don't they have a vaccine for this? So as you know, vaccines need time for development. Um, I wish it was the case that, you know, we could develop a vaccine in a week and I think we would essentially cure, you know, all of the world's uh, problems and infections. But, you know, they are working on a vaccine. When we had the first case in the U.S., there was um, sample collected from that patient and sent to uh, the National Institute of Health, NIH, and they are currently working on developing a vaccine for this. But it's a lengthy process. Um, It takes, you know, know, months to um, to year to develop a vaccine. So it's not something that's readily available right now. Most viruses, there's really no treatment for it. They're usually self-limited, meaning that people get sick for a little bit. They, you know, feel run down just like a common cold and things like that. Um, and then they get better, they get over it. Um, you know, and that's why we don't generally have vaccines for every viral in- illness with the exception of, you know, influenza, uh, where there is a virus for it. So for COVID-19, which is a new strain of the 
this coronavirus. Um, there is no vaccine because it didn't exist. Uh, the virus, this, uh, you know, strain of this virus did not exist until December 2019. So how do we go about creating a, a vaccine? So they, you know, the um, researchers um, and, uh, you know, the department of NIH is working on extrapolating basically, you know, from the patient serum, they are taking out, you know, um, identifying um, uh, the virus and they're working on creating uh, a vaccine, um, an effective vaccine, hopefully for, for this virus. They're also doing some studies. There's some very preliminary studies on some, um, uh, some medications which have some activity against coronavirus. Um, they had tried these previously with the SARS and MERS um, epidemic as well. Um, but there's not enough data on that right now. But they do have um, a class of medications that are potential as treatments for this as well. But can you, I don't, I don't know if you can or not, but comment on the, the actual process of, you have, they have this virus because it was sent to them. How, do they just take pieces of the virus and then make copies? Like, how do they go about making a vaccine? Yeah, that's basically, I mean, in, uh, I guess to just, you know, um, make it easier to understand, you know, you have to, you have to first identify, you know, the pathogen. So meaning, you know, you have to extrapolate um, uh, the actual organism, and then you have to uh, basically take parts of it that resemble that and, um, you know, and take killed parts of it. So you have different types of vaccines. You have killed vaccines and live vaccines. So um, without being too technical about it, there, there's different ways of get, getting immunity and getting people immunity. Um, so, you know, you can do that with having a live if you want to be If you can go from like not technical to technical, because I think some of the details um, are important. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, Basically, you know, you can have a live virus vaccine that um, people get and they get immunity in that way by having them exposed to a little bit, a little particle of that virus to have, in, you know, uh, inherent immunity from that. And then you have killed virus vaccines such as influenza, which you have particles of that virus, which are then inside of the vaccine so that your body, you know, then develops antibodies and you, you know, then recognize that and you develop immunity based on that. So there's different ways of developing vaccines and it basically you're taking an antigen, you know, or immunogen, immunogen um, and, you know, you're creating the vaccine based on that. Okay. Um, so then for practical purposes, if someone's traveling, how do they protect themselves from this virus? So the best way of really protecting yourself, um, that is the recommendation, um, you know, worldwide is really proper um, hand hygiene. So hand washing with soap and water is the most effective way. Um, it really is still recommended um, far more than wearing masks. You know, masks are not really recommended for the general public, general populations, um, because, uh, as I mentioned before, that the viruses are spread by droplets um, and uh, can live on surfaces and, you know, in a certain amount of distance. Distance, uh, you know, it can be aerosolized, meaning it can live for, you know, for about six feet um, out from where the person coughed or sneezed. You know, you really want to make sure that whenever you're touching any surfaces, you know, you can pick up these uh, viruses on different surfaces. So you have to really be uh, vigilant about washing your hands with soap and water. Um, that's always, always recommended. You want to try to avoid coming into contact with anybody 
who may have fevers, who may be coughing. You know, again, we talked about the droplets uh, being contagious. Um, uh, but again, the most effective way that's been found is really hand washing because, you know, you're in your regular day routine, you are touching, you know, so many different surfaces, uh, surfaces whether you're going to the grocery store, holding a shopping cart, um, you know, or going to the doctor's office or going to your kid's school, wherever you may be going, you know, hand washing, you know, what you want to do also is you, know, you want to get into the habit of not routinely um, taking your hands to your face. You know, you don't want to rub your eyes unnecessarily, uh, touching your mouth, your nose, any surfaces, you know, so you're taking these hands that may have viral particles on there and then introducing it um, to other areas so it's easy then to become infected with it. So always wash your hands with soap and water as best as you can. Now, here's a question that I've had a debate with, with, with other people is if you're going to wash your hands, how would you rate the effectiveness of soap and water versus soap and antibacterial soap versus just that pump spray stuff that you put on your hands and then air dries? Yeah. So soap and water has always been proven to be the most effective. Um, and if you can't get a hold, if you don't have, you know, um, access to soap and water, then the next is, you know, um, uh, using a, a sanitizing, uh, you know, uh, Purell um, type of uh, cleanser. But it's always recommended that if you do have access um, to soap and water, that that's really the best method. And to emphasize again, so you're not recommending people wear, or the CDC uh, yes. is not recommending people wear face masks on yeah. airplanes or to walk around the city. WHO is not recommending that people, general that general public wear masks. That's really not been found to be most effective. Again, for hospital infection prevention um, methods, when we're dealing with patients that we are suspecting might have it or at risk um, or are persons of interest, um, then, you know, there is specific recommendations for wearing masks, a certain type of mask and certain type of, you know, protective clothing, but not for the general public that's out and about, um, you know, and especially in areas where we're not, you know, dealing with, you know, um, especially like, you know, like the United States, you know, we're not dealing with a, a concentrated, um, you know, exposure here. Again, like I said, majority of the cases are still in mainland China. Um, and it's really not recommended for people to just be wearing masks all the time. The, the most uh, effective methods of prevention is still hand washing. If someone has traveled or they think they've been com they've um, come into contact with someone with this coronavirus, um, mm -hmm. can they get tested? Can I electively get tested? So um, again, you can't do it in a doctor's office. You can't just go to an urgent care um, and get tested. Um, their testing is provided by the CDC, um, and they have these. It's called um, RT PCR testing. And they are trying to get um, a lot of these kits over to um, more states so that, you know, the Department of Health can easily access them as we, you know, are anticipating that we may have more cases, more people um, that could be um, infected with COVID-19. But really what that person needs to do is, you know, to really speak with their medical provider because they may think that they have this, but they may in fact have very low risk factors and, um, and not meet the criteria. So they have to really discuss it with their physician. If their physician's uncertain, then obviously they can consult with an infectious disease physician. Um, and then, you know, we can really look into whether or not the patient has symptoms, are they high risk or not, and would they then uh, meet the criteria to be tested. Um, and then we would go about and do the testing. 
Now, you also said that um, this virus, it lives on services. You have to be careful with hand washing. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of products come out of China. So um, what are your thoughts on if you get something from China? Yeah, I mean, so there's, there's no data right now to show that there's any, um, you know, correlation with that. Again, um, it, it's the time frame would not necessarily meet um, the criteria. We, again, as I mentioned before, we don't have enough data to really say that we, it's X amount of um, hours or days that the virus is living for. Um, and, you know, most of the time, all the transmission that's being seen is between, obviously, um, the animals um, and the intermediate hosts and humans. And now there's human to human transmission. So um, it's, you know, going to be very unlikely for that scenario. Any uh, closing thoughts? I think we've covered all the high points of this this virus, how it can be spread, precautions, etc. Any closing thoughts or anything else you think um, I should have asked or you want people to know? I think something that is uh, is really interesting besides, you know, the, the basic things, I think we covered everything. And I think people need to also keep in mind that, you know, there is a little bit of hysteria, a little bit of uh, panic about this because there's so much um, of it in the media. Um, and I think everybody needs to, you know, just take a step back and um, just, you know, analyze and look at the big picture. You know, we have far more deaths from influenza in the United States than COVID-19 at this point. Again, it's still evolving. There's still like I mentioned majority of the cases are still in mainland China. Um, but, you know, we have to wait and see what the situation is going to be in the next several weeks um, and, and see what happens. But, you know, we have to sort of keep it in perspective that viruses are all around us and we're all exposed to them all the time, um, that we should still live our normal life and not sort of put everything on hold because of this fear. And sometimes the fear may not even be warranted. And I think a simple, you know, conversation with the physician can help ease that um, anxiety because I know a lot of it is driven by, you know, this being something novel, something new um, that we don't have enough information about. Um, The other thing that I think is really important for people to know, um, besides the sources, as we mentioned before, it's really important where you get your information from, because this day and age, it's very easy to access information online um, and from friends and family. But, you know, it can also create some um, hysteria and misinformation is very easily spread. So you have to make sure that um, your sources are really thorough and appropriate and accurate. Um, And so that's why we were mentioning before that the CDC and WHO um, and the Infectious Disease Society of America are really the best places to go for this information. And the last thing that people need to know is anytime we have a crisis um, or, you know, an epidemic or a, a potential for pandemic, unfortunately, we see that there are some bad people out there that take advantage of this, um, this scenario. So there has been some cybersecurity alerts that I want people to really be in tune with and know about. Um, there's a whole thread of um, uh, scams, coronavirus scams that are going around. People are essentially disguising themselves as WHO and they're sending emails, phone calls, um, even, you know, sending all these messages saying that give me your login credentials and I will see if you're at risk of coronavirus. People really need to be wary of this. Um, You know, the WHO never asks you for um, login credentials. They don't redirect usually to another website. They don't send email attachments to open. Uh, They don't ask, you know, people have been asked um, by these, you know, criminals to for money for a job or for funding or for conferences so if you see any emails like that any information that's being passed on like that 
you really have to, um, you know, take a step back and, and think twice before responding to that and be very careful because this is a real thing that's happening. Unfortunately, people do take advantage of situations like this, um, but just know that this is um, not from the WHO and this is essentially um, a scam that's going on right now. That is a great public safety announcement. So thank you very much for that. And thank you for taking the time to educate myself and everyone listening on the coronavirus. Yep. If anybody wants more information, um, I keep updating about the coronavirus on my Instagram. Um, So um, you can easily find that information um, at Uzma's World, U-Z-M-A-S-W-O-R-L-D. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for, for taking the time. Of course. My pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a comment on the Get Healthy 360 Facebook page and consider subscribing to this podcast. Thanks.